Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to continue our summer series in the Psalms, uh, focusing on the theme of the Lord reigns. And this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 98. And as you're finding your place there in your Bible or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We're going to be going back to it again and again this morning. God has hardwired us for music. God has hardwired us for music. And I think that one of the ways that you see that is in this whole idea of the earworm. Are you familiar with this idea of the earworm? It's that song that gets stuck in your head that you can't get rid of. We had one of these in our house a number of years ago. It was the song that never ends. Are you familiar with this? This is the song that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friend. Some people started singing it, not knowing what it was, and they'll continue singing it forever just because this is the song that never, and it just goes on and on and on, right? It's an earworm. It sticks in your brain. Well, um, Disney, I think, has figured out the magic formula for how to work an earworm. You see, they do these songs in children's movies that simultaneously reach the top of the charts. So in 1993, you had the movie was Aladdin, and the song was A Whole New World, and it got to number one in the charts. A year later, in 1994, the Lion King came out, and Can You Feel the Love Tonight climbed to number four in the charts. Or in more recent vintage, in 2014, the movie was frozen and the song was Let It Go. And this was a particular earworm in our house because we watched the movie over and over again with six girls of that age. And the song was Let It Go, and that climbed to number four in the charts. Or this year, in 2022, the movie is Encanto, and We Don't Talk About Bruno has climbed to number one in the charts, right? It's an earworm. Why? Because God has hardwired us for music. Music sticks in your memory and seeps into your soul. Have you ever had the experience of hearing a piece of music, and for me it's particularly live music, and you simultaneously want to smile and weep, and you don't know which to do, and so you end up doing both at the same time because that song has pierced your heart in such a way that it sticks with you, right? It lingers. It's calling to the deepest longings of your heart, and it's pointing you towards a transcendent beauty that's beyond words. Well, Psalm 98 is a song. It would have been set to music. It would have been sung in Israel's corporate worship 2,400 years ago. And this song is set in a particular group of songs called the Lord Reigns Songs or the Yahweh Malach Psalms. And all of these psalms from Psalms 93 to 99 address the reign of Yahweh as king. And I argued two weeks ago that the Yahweh Malach Psalms, the Lord Reigns Psalms, were both the structural and the theological center of the Psalter. 
They're the structural uh, center of the Psalter because in the covenant frame, which ends in Psalm 89, the end of book three, the, the redactor is posing this question, has the Davidic covenant failed? Because in a time of exile, when Israel is no longer in the land and there's no longer a Davidic king on the throne, it appears as though God's promises have failed. And then the answer comes in book four, in Psalms 93 to 99, the Yahweh Malach Psalms, and it says, no, Yahweh still reigns. Even though it seems like the promises of God have failed, Yahweh is still enthroned in heaven. And it's the theological center of the Psalter because every type of psalm, every category of psalm that you could possibly write or sing, a lament, a royal psalm, a hymn, they're all predicated on this one simple truth that Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns. It orients our whole life. The Lord reigns. We're going to look at Psalm 98 this morning under three different headings. First of all, we're going to consider a new song, a new song. We're going to see that in verse 1 and then in verses 4 through 8. Then we're going to consider a marvelous victory, verses 1 through 3. And finally, we're going to look at a coming king, verse 9. So a new song, a marvelous victory, and a coming king. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. I'm going to tell you to sing a new song because of a marvelous victory and a coming king. Sing a new song because of a marvelous victory and a coming king. Let's focus our attention here on Psalm 98. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before Your throne this morning, I pray that you would cause our hearts to look back at this marvelous victory that you have won in our lives and look forward with hopeful and expectant anticipation to the coming of the King, to the return 
of the king. Father, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, let's, let's consider this morning a new song in verse 1 and then verses 4 through 8. So our psalm begins with a command, O sing to the Lord a new song. And this echoes two psalms before in Psalm 96 and verse 1, which is part of our call to worship this morning. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. You see, Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 are songs that call for a new song. They're ancient songs. And kids, I don't mean songs from the 90s here. They're ancient songs. They're at least 2,400 years old, and they're calling for a new song. And that phrase, new song, occurs nine times in the Bible, and six of them are here in the Psalms. But why call for a new song? A new song? The psalmist here is suggesting that there aren't enough songs in the world to contain the praise of God. The psalmist is suggesting that God's praise is inexhaustible, that songs of praise will echo into eternity and still won't fill up the full praise of God. This call for a new song is a call to the creatives among us. It's a call to the choir and to RCA to write a new song. But I want to suggest this morning that this ancient song is itself a new song. What do I mean by that? In what way is it new? Well, it's new kind of like a kaleidoscope, right? You know, this thing that you twist and the picture changes. Well, at one point, when the psalmist wrote this psalm, it was new, right? It was liturgically new. It was new to the world. It was new to him. But when that psalm was put in the Yahweh Malak psalms, and it was put into the Psalter, the kaleidoscope twists, and you see a new aspect of the meaning of that psalm. And then when that book of Psalms is put into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is placed next to the New Testament, the kaleidoscope twists again, and you see a new aspect of the meaning of that psalm. And then when you read that psalm for the first time, the kaleidoscope twists, and there was a new aspect of the meaning of that psalm. And even as we read it this morning, the kaleidoscope twists again, and there's a new aspect to the meaning of that song. One commentator, Anderson, suggests that a new song perhaps means the ever new song. He says, just as God's care is never ceasing and new every morning, so also this song of his praise must be ever new. It's obvious that at some point in time our psalm was new, that is, it was newly composed, yet in its liturgical use, the newness must be sought in the fact that God's praise is inexhaustible. In other words, there's a newness to a particular song every time 
we sing it. C.S. Lewis says that the present is the only place where time touches eternity. So in this one moment with these people and those instruments, right, at this particular point in your story, this song is unique. There will never be another moment quite like it. It's new. You see, God's praise is inexhaustible. Have you ever heard an old song and you're hearing it it's like you're hearing it for the first time. You can experience this in many different ways. Holy, holy, holy was one of my favorite hymns. It is one of my favorite hymns. But it was like I was hearing it for the first time nine and a half years ago when Lee walked down the aisle to that song. It was like the kaleidoscope twists, and I was hearing it for the first time. Or when I had just started working at Redeemer four years ago, Stan Wagnon played this as an offertory, and his rendition of it was like, I've never heard this song before. It was like I was hearing it for the first time. You see, God's praise is inexhaustible, and it calls for a new song, an ever new song in each moment of our lives. It's calling for a new song in your heart. And this call for a new song is taken up in verses 4 through 8. In verses 4 through 6, there's a call to the orchestra. In verses 7 and 8, there's a call to nature. Look at verse 4. You have three verbs here. Make a joyful noise. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And each of those three verbs gets repeated in subsequent verses. Make a joyful noise gets repeated in verse 6. And when I think of make a joyful noise, I think of my dad. Uh, my dad was a ruling elder in the PCA for years, and uh, he was an aerospace engineer with a PhD in solid-state physics. He was an amazing man in many ways, but he couldn't carry a tune to save his life. And so Brian, dad would say to me, he'd say, Brian, you know, God doesn't require us to sing on melody. He just requires us to what? To make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. Now, this word could also be translated shout. Uh, it is translated shout six times in Joshua chapter 6. Remember, as God commands his people to walk around Jericho, and they march around Jericho, and they shout, right? And the walls of Jericho come down. It's this word. It's make a joyful noise. Or in 1 Samuel 10.24, the shout is long live the king. Shout, make a joyful noise. But then we have break forth into joyous song. And that phrase into joyous song in the original language is actually a verb. It's literally, and shout with joy. And that's also repeated in verse 8. And sing praises, which is repeated immediately in verse 5. It's the last word in verse 4, but it's the first word in verse 5. This word has a sense of make music or play an instrument, right? And so then the psalmist follows that thought and lists three instruments. The first instrument he lists is in verse 5. It's mentioned two times, and it's the lyre. And do you know what a lyre is? 
A liar is someone who doesn't tell the tr truth. Uh, no, no, no. In this context, a lyre is a stringed instrument from three to twelve strings, and it's used both in religious and in secular settings. And then in verse 6, you have trumpets. And trumpets are only used 29 times in the Bible. This is the only time in the Psalms. And we know from Numbers 10 that trumpets are used to summon the congregation and to break camp. And then in verse 6, we have the sound of the horn. And this would have been a ram's horn or an antelope's horn that would have been blown through, and it was, it was associated with the enthronement ceremonies of kingship, right? It's four times in the Psalms. And with these instruments, you can hear the orchestra tuning up to sing this new song. And then in verses 7 and 8, we have the call to nature, or for you Jack London fans out there, we could call this the call of the wild, right? The verb tense changes here in verses 7 and 8. In verses 4 through 6, it was all imperative. That is, it was all direct command. It's make a joyful noise, break forth into joyful song. But now in verses 7 eight, and 8, it turns to the jussive. So you have let the nations roar, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy. And this is suggestive. It's an invitation. The psalmist commands the orchestra to praise, but he's now inviting all the earth to praise, right? Verses 7 and 8, he's, he invites the sea and the world and everything in them to praise. In verse 8, he invites the rivers and the hills to praise. This is an invitation to all creation to praise the King. It's an invitation to all creation to sing a new song. And that then, that then raises the question, why should we sing? Why should creation sing? Why should we sing a new song? And that leads us to our second heading this morning, a marvelous victory in verses 1 through 3. If I can get that first slide, Andre. So, in the Psalms, there are different types of Psalms, and these different types of Psalms have a structure. And the structure of a hymn, uh, which is a particular type of Psalm, has three parts. It has a summons to praise, and then it has reasons for praise, and then it has a re recapitulation to praise. And here in our particular Psalm, those reasons, and they are almost always, those reasons are almost always introduced by one word, and in the English, it's translated for in the sense of because. And so those reasons happen for us in, one, in verse 1 and in verse 9. But let's look, first of all, at verse 1. Thanks, Andre. Verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for. Okay, so now the psalmist is going to introduce to you the reason to give praise. For he has done marvelous things. Well, what marvelous things has he done? What are those? We need to understand that psalms are written in poetry, in Hebrew poetry. 
Now, in English poetry, English poetry will use devices like rhyme or meter, metaphor or simile, but in Hebrew poetry, it uses parallelism. And in parallelism, one line unpacks or explains or expounds the previous line. So if you want to understand what marvelous things are, you need to look at the second line in verse 1 and the two lines in verse 2 and the two lines in verse 3 because they're going to explain to you what the marvelous things are that the Lord has done. So look at the next line here in verse 1. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. When the psalmist says his right hand and his holy arm, the psalmist is making clear that this is something that God does alone. God is doing this out of his own power by himself. And what has he done? His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now, this might seem like an awkward translation, right? Why does God need salvation for him? Well, that word salvation can also mean deliverance, or better in this particular context, it can mean victory. So, other translations like the New American Standard and the King James say that his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. You see, marvelous things are victorious things. It's claiming that God has won, that God has gained the victory by His own strength. And what is this marvelous victory? Look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And in these three verses, the word salvation is repeated three times. Now, as 21st century Christians, when we hear salvation we think of something that's spiritual and personal. And that's a correct application. But when the psalmist wrote Psalm 89, when the Israelites sung Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 98, they would have understood salvation through the Old Testament paradigm for salvation, which was the Exodus. You see, when they heard salvation and victory, they would have thought about it in terms of victory over Pharaoh, through the ten plagues, and deliverance out of bondage, deliverance out of slavery. They would have pictured God leading and providing and protecting in the wilderness. They would have heard the victory as God's people entered the promised land. Now, the New Testament develops Jesus' work from various themes in the Old Testament, and one of them is the theme of the Exodus. So, in the New Testament, bondage is now no longer bondage to slavery in Egypt, but it's bondage to sin and death. And the New Testament takes this idea of being slaves, but being set free. And the glory of the promised land is paralleled to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And the New Testament portrays Jesus like a second Moses who needed to escape the slaughter of infants as an infant, who spent 40 days in the wilderness mirroring the 40 years in the wilderness, 
right? And the language of the New Testament uses redeem and redemption, deliver and deliverance, ransom and purchase. That's just the vocabulary of the Exodus, right? And so it's a correct application that when you hear salvation, to think justification, sanctification, glorification, because that's how the New Testament interprets it. But in the Old Testament, when they heard salvation, when they heard victory, they were thinking of the deliverance of the Exodus. And so how does God bring this salvation, this victory for His people? He brings it through His character as the warrior king. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, He has revealed His righteousness. And verse 3, He remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, salvation, this victory, reveals God's righteousness. It reveals His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And steadfast love and faithfulness, these, these are covenant terms. You see, steadfast love is love based on the covenant. It's a certain love. It's an immovable love. It's an unchanging love. And faithfulness has a sense of covenant loyalty that God will keep his promises. And that's exactly what happened in this marvelous victory. Did you notice the verb that went with his steadfast love and his faithfulness? He has what? He has remembered. Why remember? Does an omniscient God forget? When the Bible uses God remembers, it's used in the sense of God acting on behalf of His covenant. God's remembering always involves movement, and it's movement towards the object of His memory. When God remembers, He is being faithful to His covenant. And it's significant that the psalmist uses this covenant language of remembering and faithfulness and steadfast love, because in the Psalter, at the end of book three, Psalm 89 leaves us with the question, did the Davidic covenant fail? Can I get this slide, the next slide here, Andre? Look at Psalm 89 and verse 46, right? They're in a time when Israel is in exile, where there's no longer a king on the throne. They don't, they don't own the land, and the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then in verse 49, O Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? And the two subsequent verses, verses 47 and verse 50, both begin with remember. They're a plea to the Lord to remember His covenant when it seems like God has forgotten. Thanks, Andre. And now, in the middle of the Yahweh Malach Psalms, Psalm 98 answers that question with this, with Yahweh's marvelous victory. 
You see, that deliverance, that salvation that we experienced in the Exodus, where God rescued us from our distress and delivered us from bondage, that happened because God remembered, because God was faithful to His covenant. In a time when all seems lost, where everything seems hopeless, God acted. And you can hear the psalmist whispering, if He did it before, He will do it again. You see, past deliverance anticipates future deliverance, rehearsing God's covenant faithfulness at a time where God remembered and acted anticipates a future time that God will do it again. There will be a second exodus. There will be a new return to the land. And oh, brothers and sisters, when we're in that time when it seems like the promises of God have failed, we need to cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? We need to cry out in anguish. And then we need to be reminded We need to be reminded that God is faithful and God will act. We need to be reminded that there will be a second exodus. There will be a new return to the land. This is Romans 8.32 logic. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? You see... If God did not spare His own Son, nothing, nothing will ultimately separate us. Nothing will finally separate us from the love of Christ. Deliverance is coming. It may not come when we hope. It may not come how we hope. But God is faithful, and He will act. And that's what verse 9 says. Verse 9 brings us to a coming king, a coming king. So, the first reason that the hymn gives for the singing of a new song introduced in verse 1 by 4 looks in the past of God's marvelous victory in the past. And the second reason introduced here in verse 9 with that key word for anticipates the future. Look at verse 9. For he comes to judge the earth, and He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He comes to judge the earth. And that word judge here is the verb form of the noun that we read this morning in Psalm 97 verse 2. As the psalmist is giving you a picture of God's reign, this theoph- the theophonic reign of His presence with His people, he says righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. And judge has that sense of establishing justice, of setting things right, of undoing the wrong. And you can see that in His description of how He judges in verse 9. How does He judge? He judges with righteousness and with equity. And righteousness has that sense of being in the right. It too is a part of the foundation of Yahweh's throne in Psalm 97 and verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation 
of his throne. And equity, equity only is only used, this word is only used 19 times in the Old Testament, only three times in this altar, and it has a sense of uprightness or straightness. It's used in Psalm 96 and verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. In other words, we will see Yahweh's right righteousness and his equity when he comes to judge the earth. As the conquering divine warrior, he will restore right order in the world. Now, most kings, most earthly kings, have only brought oppression and misery. But when we begin to see a picture of this coming king who comes to restore order and to set things right and to overturn injustice and to vanquish the enemy and to gain the victory, when you see that his kingdom is full of righteousness and equity, then we begin to pray in hopeful anticipation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you, be, you can begin to see why the whole world, the sea and the earth, the rivers and the hills and all that is within them, why all creation is ready to stand and shout. It's ready to sing and clap. The whole world is ready to break forth in jubilant exaltation. The world is waiting to be awakened because it is longing to meet its king. Did you know that Psalm 98 was the basis for a well-known hymn? We didn't sing it today because it's a Christmas hymn. The hymn is Joy to the World. It's Joy to the World. Can I get that on the screen, Andre? Isaac Watts in 1719, as he's meditating on Psalm 98, and the incarnation at Christmas, he writes this, joy to the world, and listen to the reverberation of Psalm 98 coming through. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. And you know that Watts wrote that about a baby in a manger, right? Thanks. James Luther Mays says this, when Isaac Watts transformed the psalm into a hymn for Christmas, he was tutored by scripture and tradition, and he got it right. Joy to the world as a hymn reflects and renews what the psalm has always meant 
in Christmas liturgy. It catches and repeats the exuberance of humankind and nature in recognition of what is happening. It interprets Christmas, get this, it interprets Christmas as a decisive event in the reign of God, something that changes history for the nation. It maintains the connection between salvation and rule. It's saying the Savior reigns. You see, Isaac Watts is saying, and the New Testament is saying, that Jesus is that coming King, that His incarnation was the beginning of His kingdom. He's the one who comes to restore order, to set things right, to overturn injustice, to vanquish the enemy, and to gain the victory. But, oh, brothers and sisters, the incarnation is just the beginning. That phrase, new song, occurs nine times in the Bible, six times in the Psalms, one time in Isaiah, and the last two times come in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, when Jesus opens the scroll, demonstrating that He was the coming King, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before Him, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're saying, The King has returned. The King has come. And in Revelation chapter 14, when the full number of saints who have the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, when they join the chorus, it sounds like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And why are they singing? What are they singing? They're singing a new song. A new song that only the redeemed from the earth could learn. And why are they singing that new song? Because the King, King Jesus, has come again. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is worthy to judge the earth, and Revelation is rejoicing in the return of the King. And Christian, as we live between the book of Psalms and the book of Revelation, we wait and we hope. You see, the King has come, and He is coming again. You can hear Revelation whispering, if He did it before, He will do it again. The past coming of the King anticipates the future coming of the King. God is faithful to His covenant. All His promises are yes and amen in Jesus. There will be a second exodus. There will be a new return to the land. The King is coming because Yahweh reigns. And we sang it this morning, didn't we? Behold, He comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet's call, lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. You see, the King is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. And then, and then it will happen. Handel puts it this way in the Hallelujah Chorus, written in 1741. The kingdom of this world 
is become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, that's a new song for the coming King. And I pray that that song sticks in your memory and seeps into your soul. And that it gives you a hope that transcends your circumstances and a peace that passes understanding. And I pray that that song enables you to sing a new song again today because of a marvelous victory and a coming king. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have worked for us in our hearts and in our minds a marvelous victory. And so I pray as we prepare to come to the table that you would remind us again that there is a day when our King will return. And Father, would we long for that day. Be with us now as we prepare to come to the table. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.